Hey guys, welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. I'm Josh Horowitz. This is my podcast. This is where I talk to super insanely talented and charismatic people, which leads me to this week's guest, Mr. Danny Boyle. Uh, Certainly one of my favorite filmmakers working today. If you haven't seen it yet, Steve Jobs is in theaters. It is now everywhere. It was a limited release, but now it's gone wide. Um, I spoke to him just after this film premiered at the New York Film Festival, and he is as charming and personable as he is talented, and I simply adore this movie. So it was a real... um, it was really exciting for me to catch up with him for a, a good period of time. We talk about a lot of different things. Um, but before we get into more uh, Danny Boyleness, let me introduce you to a couple folks that you, if you've heard the podcast before, you know them well. Sammy, Joel, hey, how's it going, guys? Hi, welcome back, Joel. Thanks, Sammy. Joel was, jo- Joel was at, at, at a wedding last week, yes, so he missed our, our introduction. That's as much infor- too personal much. No, information. No personal information. It wasn't your wedding, right? No, not that I know of, but hard to tell. Did uh, did you make a speech? That, have you ever made a speech at a wedding? That seems. I've never given a speech at a wedding. Have you ever I was working. Given a speech out. in public. <laughs> yeah, all the time. <laughs> when I'm on the, the subway platform without. and I'm yelling at people. Um, no, actually, I don't know. I mean, outside like work, like at a function, no, or like a yeah. I've never given a public speech. What about you, Sammy? Have you given a speech at a wedding? Yeah, I have. I bet you give good speeches. I, listen, everyone's good at something. Um. Pretty good at giving speeches. Yeah. Like I mean, I'm a maid of honor in a wedding in a couple of weeks. So everyone's like, "Are you nervous about this speech?" And I'm like, "No, I'm gonna kill it." <laughs> <laughs> like, if and when I get married again, um, you guys. <laughs> can I, can I have <laughs> nothing totally to say speech. for you. <laughs> I have nothing for you. That's like the worst thing I could have possibly said because my wife is now listening to this and is about to hit me in the face. I would side that. with your wife. Yeah. Over you. That's probably right. Yeah. Part of the best. Um, so as I said, this week's guest is Danny Boyle. Very excited about uh, this guy who obviously won the Academy Award for Slumdog Millionaire. We talk about a great many things, including Train Spotting. He's about to go off and direct, finally, the long-awaited sequel to Train Spotting. Amazing. It's crazy. I can't wait. We get into, if you guys um, know or don't know, I mean, there was that period of time when Danny you know, he was working with Ewan McGregor a lot, and then the beach came, and they kind of had like a falling out. So we even talk about that sort of rift that happened and how they've come together again and worked it all out. Danny accepts some blame. Basically, long story short, he he abandoned Ewan for like the biggest movie star on the planet at the time to star in his film. So Leo, you, you live, you learn. Um, so he's back with the, his old mates on this film. So I'm really excited about that. And uh, mm-hmm. as I said, he's he's one of these guys that if you see him to give it over a Q&A in public or something or just interviewed on television or in a podcast like this, you, you fall in love with him because he's like so enthusiastic and effusive, much like recent podcast guest Guillermo del Toro. Kind of peas in a pod. It's amazing so. that these guys who direct these really sort of intense and sometimes dark movies are these like jolly, lovely gentlemen. Yeah, they're just exercising their demons for us. I feel like Frank Darabont is also in that because he's like a yeah. very jolly, sweet man, and then he directs things like oh the, God, Mist the, and the, the Mist and The Mist is like yeah. the darkest movie ever. The Mist, the Mist is great. You should see The Mist, Sammy. Um, okay. It's kind of like how you guys. I think it's how you guys will end up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's not, it's just so you know, Sammy, that's not good. Um, I don't like that. <laughs> you don't like that. Uh, what else to mention? 
We're gonna mention it again because it's out there. We're gonna mention Tom Hiddleston because oh boy. because we did we debuted um, this uh, sketch that we're all very proud of mm-hmm. called The Party with Tom Hiddleston and Jessica Chastain. If you haven't seen it, please check it out on MTV News's YouTube page. We're very very proud of it and very proud of not surprised at all by the performances that Jessica and Tom give in this. They went for broke. They mm-hmm. did our crazy shit and went the extra mile. Those kisses were in there. I warned everyone about those kisses, and they were, so they to were in there. So to address, for, for many of you who have been tweeting me about this, have been asking questions, if you're not interested in this, fast forward three or four minutes to the podcast, <laughs> but I will address some of the Tom Hiddleston questions here. People ask and say, oh, Josh wrote the kisses <laughs> into the script, because in the sketch, Tom and Jessica kiss me approximately eight to ten times each, I would say. And that's all that was used. There was like 150 more <laughs> kisses true, that weren't true. even filmed. For the record, Joel, who was a co-writer of the sketch, Hello. was <laughs> there any direction or directive in the script for Tom or Jessica to kiss me? Not on the face, no. <laughs> <laughs> not helpful. No, no it, uh, not it was helpful. not in the script. Uh, it, As far as I can tell, I was not on set. But oh, from all accounts, oh, nice. it was improvised. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it was not in the script. It was not. Not in the script. Um, there were a couple of really great moments of improvisation. There's that. Um, there's a couple of flourishes that um, like Tom gives after the porta potty speech. Uh, what about naughty sausage? Was naughty it, sausage is improvised. That was loved the naughty sausage. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, truly, it reminds me a lot of the, uh, Tom was talking to me and the whole gang before the shoot about remembering when we shot Loki'd, um, which was kind of the first big sketch we did, and he was remembering so fondly because it was the end of that press tour for Avengers. It was literally like the last thing he did, and he just got to like, not turn his brain off, but certainly go to a different place. And I think similarly for this, this was kind of the end of the Crimson Peak press cycle for both Jessica and Tom. So uh, they got to explore a different side of themselves <laughs> for a couple hours, and uh, it was a blast to shoot. And um, CJ, our editor, killed it, and Michael and, and Joel and everybody involved really did a, a great job. So very proud of it. If you haven't seen it, look and check it out. Um, well, one yeah, more thing. Yeah. Were the tears real? The te- that was amazing, wasn't it? The tears it? were, like, very powerful. My, my fa- probably my, I have a few favorite moments, but the, certainly the monologue is something I mm. loved. It was even a little longer on the page. Um, I think Joel and I had the same kind of thought initially. We kind of wanted it to play out as like a single take, like just like one unbroken take of mm-hmm. Tom delivering it. And we certainly could have run it as that, but um, for a variety of reasons, it worked better with some cutting. But to answer your question about the tear, it was real. He said basically, uh, I don't think he, he told me in advance he was going to do it, but I, he, he afterwards I, I saw that he had done it and was certainly amazed and excited that he had conjured that up. Yeah. Wow. It he, was, yeah. he can cry on command. I think he did in Loki. He I don't think we used it, but he, there were some tears he forced when Steve was when <laughs> injured. Steve gets yeah, not murdered, but he breaks his back. No, he's he's fine. There's a pizza bone sticking out, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it's touching the floor. Yeah. The saddest thing is Joel and I quoting old after hours episodes <laughs> to each other, which we do endlessly. <laughs> um so yeah, so there's that. There's some really cool um, after hours uh, cooking. Um, nothing that that we've shot yet, so I don't want to jinx any of them. But there are uh, at least a couple that are going to be shot in the next few weeks that um, are super bananas and, and fun. With there's at least two that I probably shouldn't even be present for because I would just embarrass myself in front of the people. Well, Daniel Day Lewis. Oh, oh <laughs> I didn't no! Spoil that you one. Uh, you that spoiled my DDL session. Everyone cross your fingers. That one, that one still happens. Yeah. Em and Gene Hackman were really helping her come yeah. through. Yeah, they are. On the list. Um, 
let's see. I guess, I guess that's about it to cover. Anything else, guys, on your end that we need to cover in your lives to bring them up to speed? No, we're really, really happy to be here. I asked Josh the other day if, like, he thought that, like, I was his Robin Quivers now that I've been doing these intros, and he told me I was more like his Artie. <laughs> <than> his <Robin. laughs> I mean, substance abuse issues. So, That's basically what I'm talking right. about. <laughs> All that Coke Zero with your, vanilla um, syrup. Your, oh, I don't know the whole Howard Stern crew well I, enough to say what I you know, are, no, I know it's it. But uh, I, you certainly I really have like, some kind of malady. Well, that, that's, that's, yeah, that's true. definitely, that's true. like one of the sick <laughs> ones. Um, yeah, I will say I really like Sunshine. Bring it back to Danny Boyle. Yes, underrated movie. I feel like. I love and Sunshine. wait, and quick question: Was it Christian Bale was supposed to be Steve Jobs? Uh, yes, yes. That, that's the the, the, the wow. derivation of this project for background is it was going to be a David Fincher movie. Christian Bale was starring in it, and it kind of all of this got exposed. If you really want to go on the interwebs and find out about it, in that Sony in hack, the Sony hack, Sony dropped the movie. It went over to Universal. Aaron Sorkin's script was still uh, alive. Seth Rogen had already been cast. They got Fassbender. The great Danny Boyle came in, and the rest is history. This is one of my top two or three favorite movies of the year. It might end up being my favorite. So um, check out the movie. You can see it before this, or you can see it afterwards. But regardless, this is a super interesting fun chat for anyone that's a, a big movie geek like myself. Uh, enjoy Mr. Danny Boyle. Thanks, Anna. <laughs> extra love for deep Danny Boyle. Thanks for nothing. You could have like, clapped something, done something. Are you, you going to use this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here's your list of New York faults. So, this, so my, <laughs> the other side of my life, outside of um, normal, studious conversations, are sketches. We take sketches. So I have this wall of uh, New Yorkers. I'm like always like, okay, if I need somebody for a sketch, here's who I know. Here's who's around. I know they're around and get them. Yeah. <laughs> Getting them is another story. Yeah, no, of course. Yeah. Um, I saw him at Paul Dano. I saw him in the Love and Mercy. Oh my God, he's so good. He did the podcast too. Actually, he's a, yeah, he's astounding. He's Fantastic. So good. Um, do you want to dive right in, or do you want to? Yeah, no, um, whatever you want. Is that yeah. okay? This is yeah. super casual. There's no official introduction because it would take too long to introduce your credits, <laughs> sir, uh, and to uh, explain how much I uh, appreciate and love your work. And um, <laughs> but no, this is a thrill for me because I'm a, I'm a huge fan of yours, and uh, I got a chance to be at the New York Film Festival this past week and saw Steve Jobs, and uh, it's an amazing piece of work, man. Oh, you cool. should feel very proud. Oh. Um, I, I guess one thing that I I've, you know, I've I've talked to you over the years. I've l listened to a lot of interviews you've done. One thing that I, that struck me is you've talked about how, like, generally speaking, your first film is the one that you consider your best in yeah. general. That you're trying—is it that you're always trying to get back to something in a way? And and what are you trying to get back to? Yeah, I think I do. I do believe that actually, your first film is always your best one. It's, it won't be probably won't be your most successful. Um, and you, you know, you learn a lot more as you go on. Obviously, unless you're an idiot, you're kind of learning as you go along. Right. But actually, the first time you get to do it is the best yeah. because you don't know what you're doing, and if you make it through, you know, then there's something there that contains the essence of you beginning to just see what's possible, really. And you never can get that back again. Yeah. You're always you've lost the innocence then straight away and it's all and then it's and also you've been through the process of how to sell it and all that kind of side and of stuff clouds a little bit yeah and then you start to meet the business people who are involved in it and the kind of and it's you never quite get it and I always quote I mean the Coen brothers who are geniuses have never been better than Blood Simple 
you know, and they are just brilliant. And yeah. They make brilliant films, but I love Blood Simple, you know, because it's just like, it's got that innocence and naivety in it that's, and yet it's an incredibly thrilling and right. deliberate film, you know, so you can put together all sorts of weird adjectives that don't really make sense side by side, like naive and cunning at the same time. They can all exist in your first one, I think, in a way. Are, are there, are there, bad habits that even you as as this amazing filmmaker feel like you have to avoid when you're on set that you're cognizant of like okay this is a trap that i tend to or could fall into let me be aware of this or do you have others calling you out on stuff do you know what i mean are there things that you think of i am always i have a lazy side of me which is i know how to do this which is i've i've i probably shouldn't tell you where i exhibited it but in a couple of films i've had Ah, oh, leave that to me. I know how to do that. I've done that before. I, I can make that work. And it doesn't. It never works the second time. You right. kind of think, oh, I know how to do that. And it never quite works the second time because you should be, you should be always in a place where you don't know. You really don't know. And, it, and it's weird for people, especially financiers, you can't be saying to them, I want to get to this state where I really don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> they're spending <laughs> millions of yeah. dollars employing you to kind of, because they think you know what you're doing. Right. And actually, the reality is the best stuff comes when you really don't know. So when a script like this comes around, and we all know the, 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 the storied history of this project by now, but um, I mean, how often does a script like this come around where it feels fully formed and it feels presumably ready to roll for you? Yeah, we uh, well, it's very particular this because we I've never we've never ever done somebody else's project. Right. This is Scott Rudin's project, you know, because he was he's developed the script sure. with Sorkin and they they'd done a f- film previously, Social Network, brilliantly with Fincher. I don't know what happened. Fincher dropped out, but the script was there and it was dazzling, like nothing I'd ever done before. This and 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 I and I've I've always resisted making very particular kinds of films in America because I didn't grow up here. I love the place, but I, I don't know anything about it, really, if I'm honest. Mm-hmm. You give me something about growing up in Britain, I'm on it. Right. And so I didn't want to put myself in the circumstance where you're on set and because you don't have that infinity of knowledge, you have to turn to someone and say, if he was taking the, his girlfriend on a date, would he use, would he use his dad's car? Would he, right. You know, because it's a kind of the culture slightly different. Yep. Um, so I never wanted to be in that circumstance. So I've done a couple of American films. One about a guy trapped in a canyon when all I really needed to know were about what was it like in that canyon. Yeah. <laughs> and I could get my head around that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And this one, which is because of the brilliant concept of it, that it's three launches and the 40 minutes behind each of those launches before he goes on stage, you can kind of, it's manageable. You can get a grip on it. On the other hand, it's so dense, this dialogue, and it's talking at his kind of most ferocious 185 pages of dialogue, no indication of how to do it. Three acts, six characters, interior day continuous. And, and, it, and at first you think, wow, you'd run a mile from that. But then the other, you realise Finch has done it before. You think he made a pretty amazing job of that. If I can do something half as good, it will be okay. And you realise Sorkin is a provocateur. Yep. He's basically going, can you make a film out of it? You've you've made a career of like uh, uh, you know you've been notable in that you've avoided you know do, working in other people's franchises over the years. My theory is that this is kind of like your first dip into so, into a, into a franchise in a way because as you allude to this, it does feel of a sort with it, it fits with Social Network. It yeah. fits on that shelf with it. Did it feel strange to kind of like? It, it certainly feels like your work, but it also, as I said, kind of calls back to that one. Was there anything odd about sort of 
calling back to another film in a way or feeling like you had you were indebted to another film in a way i know i think people were you could feel everybody's tiptoeing around at first saying oh don't mention social network <laughs> don't mention david fincher and i was going well actually i really like the guy's work I like enormously he's one of my favorite directors that is actually one of my favorite films let's look at it and they were going oh no no why don't you look at west wing instead and i said no because and it was amazing looking at it it was incredibly helpful because what they did in that film is this it's a sitting down film really unusual for any major motion picture where everybody sat down all the time and if they get out of a chair there's usually highly significant reasons why they have done so <laughs> and, and I thought that's wonderful because this and you could feel it even in the reading of it is the standing up film I mean he did not he was not he wanted to walk and talk and that feeling especially 40 minutes before a launch you can feel this restlessness physical right. restlessness and it's the restlessness of mind as well you know he has a restless mind he's forever forging forward so that was a huge help to have social network there and, and it feels like it's in a lineage on it and progressive from yeah. it you know and you're right i think that i think there are other there's other stuff to write about these people these people are us this is our world there's nobody laying down not politicians you know not armies there's nobody laying down the world the path of the world like these guys have done yeah it's oh, a sea change i mean we're, we're literally it's not just kids we're I, I'm, I'm wedded to that phone six hours of my day i feel like if not more it's insane it's insane and you take it to bed yeah last thing you look at first thing you get after sleep you wake up with it in fact people use them in their sleep to monitor <laughs> how their sleep's going with yeah. the apps and stuff like that so it's like um and he saw that and, and of course it's impossible to describe to people what it was like before that vision of his right. and we, we start our film with a bit of Arthur C. Clarke mm -hmm. who's a great science fiction writer co-wrote 2001 the, the movie and he begins in this and we do it because he begins in this room which is surrounded by walls of computers and these are intimidating ominous looking things in steel and blinking lights right. and it comes from a time the early 70s then where Everything that happened with computers as they progressed was seen as a threat to us. Right. We were scared. Big blue. You know, it was like, whoa, what's going, what are they going to do next? Right. And, and they didn't, whereas Jobs was actually saying, no, they're part of you. They're, they're an extension of you. They're, they're an extension yeah. of you. And eventually with biotech now, they're going to become literally part of you. Yeah. You know, and he saw that, that that's what we wanted. Now, is it a good thing we wanted that? There's obviously great stuff come out of it. Right. There's also damages as well in the human costs. And he showed that in Social Network as well. And and that that this film continues to explore that. It's what's the human cost of doing this stuff. I mean, one thing that, that's certainly not a surprise given your previous work in, in watching this film is, is how much energy there is, how much uh, how, how, how it plays in, in a way to me. I said to my wife afterwards, like it felt like there were action set pieces in it. There was there was like a crescendo. Like I, I talk about the um, the Jeff Daniels showdown in the middle of the film is just is so powerful and feels as as gripping and thrilling as any action sequence I've seen this year. Do you do you think about it in those terms? In terms of like we we crescendo here, we 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 build up to this, and we have a few of kind of these moments, and then we go quiet. And you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean you do. I guess you you need a great editor. We had what this guy who edited Milk actually. Oh really? Which I remember seeing Milk thinking this is a wonderful film about time and place. It's really beautifully done, and he's a he doesn't work all the time. He's a young guy, a lot younger than me, <laughs> and called Elliot Graham and he's like brilliant at it yeah so yeah we were aware of that trying to build crescendos and the thrill of it and 
And also, Steve, he has this reputation of coming out of the hippie era, which right. he did, and there was a Zen thing. But his the ferocity of his focus and his dis- destroyed all sense of ease. Yeah. There's no ease around him. It's just the pursuit of the future. And if you want to see the future, you've got to invent it, okay? And he did it. Right. And the... The restlessness of his mind and his behaviour is a gift for a filmmaker. Yeah. You know, even though it's represented through dialogue mostly, you can literally illustrate it almost physically sometimes. And it becomes the speed of mind is so fast, the film better be fast as well. Right. Because this... You're keeping up with him. You <laughs> are, you know. And, it, and, it, and if it's too leisurely, you're not doing your job, really. Are, do you consider yourself a perfectionist? I mean, I think it's safe to say that would be something to call Steve among other adjectives is that he was a perfectionist. <laughs> yeah, you kind of try and... I mean, it depends how, how much you're going to sacrifice in pursuit of that perfectionism. I mean, you literally can go the whole hog and literally destroy people right. while you you do it. I, I'm not, I'm not, I would not be party to that. I, I, I believe in, I actually believe, I'm, I'm not saying I'm successful at it, but I believe in what was says. And it's a big thing in the film that runs through the film that right. you can be decent and gifted at the same time. Right. It's not binary. It's not a separate thing. It is possible to do that. And I love, and it's said by Seth, Rogan, who plays Woz, he wasn't like Woz at all, except he is Woz. Yeah. Because Woz is an engineering genius and a lovely man. Seth is a comic genius, and I know that having worked with him now yeah. and done stuff with him. It's just like, and he's also a very, very decent man. And so when he says that, it has a resonance that's like, I really believe that. Yeah. It's possible, and Seth's an example of it, you know? And how wonderful to be able to get a guy like that to say it for you as part of the as part of the characters, you know. Is is that kind of balance something that took a while for you to figure out? I mean, that's it's something we're all figuring out, right? Is 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 the cliche of the work personal life balance, right? And like in your profession, filmmaking is so all consuming. The schedule is so bizarre, and that like when you're when you're shooting, you're, I would think everything else kind of moves to the side. Um, how did you figure out how to kind of like navigate that and figure out how to maintain a a life? amidst the work or have you or is it a work in progress <laughs> I think one of the reasons I did the film is it's about fathers and daughters actually She's got all this amazing girl playing the 19 uh, year old Lisa who ends up kind of pinning him to the wall um, and it, I, I have two daughters and I know there's been costs involved in me pursuing this career and you you've got to hold your hand up you hope it wasn't quite as acute and uncomfortable as Steve's journey through that was at times, but there have been moments, yeah. So you've, we've all got stuff to work on. So yeah, you, um, you're working on it the whole time. I remember hearing about a guy, no, I have two heroes actually, a guy who passed away, Alan Clark, a film director, and another guy, Nick Rogue, who's still alive, very elderly now. And I always heard stories about how decent they were on the set right. to everyone. And I remember thinking that's really important because I think when you walk on a set, everybody expects you to start shouting. You can see people are just like they're tense, waiting to be shouted at. Right. And you don't have to do it that way. You can kind of, I mean, it's slightly cunning because you're trying to get the best out of them. And it's just another way of going about it, whereby you make them 
believe in you as a decent guy and go that extra mile for you as a decent guy. So you could say it's deliberate and cunning and sure. how truthful it is, I don't know. But I like to believe it's possible, yeah. From from a, from a film geek's perspective, when I heard what you were doing in terms of mixing formats in this, that was it was it seemed like of course that's genius and it works and it's amazing. Um, I mean, I always think back to you know when I was a kid, like one of the first films that kind of like blew my mind. I remember seeing was like JFK and to see what like Oliver Stone did, which felt like it blew the roof off like what you could do and how it could work. Um, is that something, I don't know if you've, I mean, I guess 28 Days Later, maybe you, you, did you, was it all digital? I don't know if you used different formats on that one. Very proud of 28 Days Later. 28 Days Later was apparently was the first widely distributed commercial film shot on digital. Amazing. Which, if that's true, it's like, wow. <laughs> did, they, you didn't they, know at the time, they, they you didn't feel like you were. That and they can't change that. <laughs> Nobody can go back and alter that, can they? Right. <laughs> but we shot on it on very, on consumer cameras, yeah, that were kind of, just beginning to really become on stream then. So, um, yeah, so we used three formats and we had an idea that it was it would help you feel the progression of the time, but also his mind. Because, we, we, we so we shoot the first part in 16 mil and it's a good, rough home, especially these days where it looks so soft. Yeah. It looks homemade. It's kind of like they've made it in the garage that they're working mm -hmm. in and kind of, it feels like that. And then you move to the second part, which is a cunning... Um, acts of revenge, of kind of hidden intention. And and, and, and 35 is great for that, especially in an, an ornate place like the Opera House which in San Francisco, which is very gilded and red velvet and all right. that kind of stuff. And it feels very kind of like uh, neat for that. And then you move, it's 1998, when the digital cameras weren't available, but we used them for the 1998 section because we wanted to suggest his mind the infinite possibilities now of um, digital resolution, you know, and it's like, and, but of course he'd already done it because in 96, he'd released Toy Story, a company that he funded sure. virtually himself. And I remember seeing Toy Story. I took my kids to see it on a Sunday morning. And I, I it's one of those rare moments in cinema where you are, you just think the world has changed. Yeah. This has changed everything. And it had changed everything in animation from there on in. So he deserves that resolution at that time. Yeah. And it's it's tough on actors because it's like everything's visible. There's nothing hidden now. It's all there in clean lines and it's beautiful and pristine and perfect. What are you going to do with it? And of course, he's got a hole in his heart, really, or a hole in him that he needs to address. Whereas everything else seems to be going perfectly. I'm curious, like, what for you, some of those other, you know, blow your head off moments as a film goer have been, you know, I mentioned JFK, you mentioned seeing toy story. Um, I mean, it's so, I find it so inspiring uh, to, to see something like what you've done here, which is both from Aaron's approach in the screenplay form. And in terms of what you've done from a filmmaking standpoint, inspiring. And then to see, you know, last year we all talked about Birdman and boyhood. And these are films that are still pushing the, the, the form, you know, we're only a hundred years in or whatever into filmmaking. So it's still evolving. Um, what are the what are, what are the films that kind of like resonate with you in that way where it's like this is a sea change and and do you get off on that from a filmmaking and from a fan perspective when you see someone pushing in that oh, way? I love it. I mean, I loved. We were talking before we started about Paul Dano in yeah. Love and Mercy. I loved that. Yeah, I just thought it was so. You know, they they were so free about the way they went about it, trying to do something which is impossible, which is like tell his story and the Beach Boys. I just love the way that yeah. was done. So, but I mean, the big one for me is Apocalypse Now, just because 
I suppose that has a bigger part in my life than any movie. Really. What, did you see that as a, as a child? Like what, what age did it hit you? you think? Sadly, I wasn't a child. It was released in 1979 when I was 22 years old. Okay. Uh, it's already. Still forming. Still, for, <laughs> still very formative. Yes. I was very immature. Yeah. Very immature 22 <laughs> year old. No, I, I, it's hard to speak about that film. I could watch that film in all its formats, in all its versions. Right. I mean, Plantation sequence or not, whatever you'll yeah, take whatever, it, however. You know, I'll, um, <laughs> I just thought that, I just think that he is, to take war, you know, war makes for good movies, pretty much. Um, he takes war and he takes filmmaking and he takes the time um, and he puts them together in a way that's so imaginative. The whole film is about this movement, which is, Ultimately, what movies are, they're moving, the, the fact that things can move left to right and right to left yeah. across the screen in front of you. And so he creates this journey of movement. And every time it stops, there's a, an apocalypse of something or other, right. you know, which is either war or it's the Playboy bunnies or, mm-hmm. you know, and, and he, that's how he tells his story. And then you end up, you arrive at this figure who is to cinema in a way. I don't know whether we've ever got another figure quite like him, sure. Marlon Brando. You know, he arrives at this point, uh, which is a fusion of war, the insanity of war, the insanity of acting, and then the insanity of movies. And he just fuses them all together yeah. in this effortless style. You don't need to know any of that shit. You can just enjoy it as a war <laughs> right. movie. Right. You know, it's, and, it's, and, and, and you think about where we are now and what and the threat in the world at the moment. Right. And you see some of the stuff you see going down and you think about that scene of Brando in that. That film was made 40 years ago. And yet it's absolutely current. And it's not like watching a classic. It's like watching a film that oh, they just finished and brought back, you know. His films are unique in that there are so there are at least half a dozen that, that stand up to repeated viewings. I mean, Godfather, of course. But like I was talking, actually, with Nona Ryder yesterday. She said, hello. Um, she, uh, we were talking about Bram Stoker's Dracula, which I feel like was like another kind of operatic take on, some, on something we've seen a thousand times, yeah. yet felt so unique given his approach. Happy, sad, confused listener, listen to my voice because Nathan For You continues its new season on Comedy Central. Nathan Fielder, the comedian who brought you dumb Starbucks and Pig Saves Goat, is back with more outlandish ideas to help real small businesses, and this is his most ambitious season yet. You have to see it to believe it. Nathan For You airs on Comedy Central Thursdays at 10, 9 Central, or anytime on the Comedy Central app. Check it out. Um, so wait, wait, okay. So you're growing up. What are your, I mean, when, when did filmmaking enter into the picture? Cause you, you spent some time directing some TV before you did your first feature. Yes, I did. But, but I had, I mean, I come from a, I'm a twin. I have a twin sister. Mm-hmm. And when we were seven, we went to the movies for our seventh birthday, but we, but it was, a, I had a very traditional upbringing. So my dad took me to see Battle of the Bulge. And my mom took my sister to see Sound of Music <laughs> in separate cinemas in this town that we live near. And that was kind of like, that's my first kind of moment of it. And, it, and, um, and it's interesting, of course, because actually one of the things you learn is you get wisdom rather than experience. <laughs> I realised what a great director Robert Wise was, you know, who directed sure. Sound of Music. And one of my best moments ever is we were, hit, we were in America and we showed... And it must have been at a DGA thing, I think. 
we showed Shallow Grave, so it was like the first film. Yeah. I remember walking out after the q and A. I'd walk, I walked up the the aisle, and there was this old man stopped me, and he said, "Very good film, young man. Very good, good <laughs> stuff." Like that, and and I walked past him, and they said, "That's Robert Wise." When I got outside, they said that was Robert Wise. That's a moment. He's passed away now. God bless him. But um, that was a wonderful moment for yeah. me because he also had a career where he he tried to touch so many different tones and registers, you know, in the work that he did. So, yeah. So that was a. So that was a. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, and I did television. I learned a lot from working on television and theatre in Britain, where you can move pretty much easier. And you think about lots of British directors. Gallows passed away, sure. but Doldry, Sam Mendes, you right. know, there's lots of British directors who move between the different formats. So by the time you got to Shallow, Shallow Grave, you're in your late 30s. Did it feel like I have I, I'm ready for this? I am like this is my time. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it all out on the table. I I, I, I I'm equipped to do this. Or did it feel like there was some uncertainty at that point for you? No, we were pretty. We were pretty. It was deliciously reckless because you would just kind of. There was no guarantee. It's not a very stable profession, the British film industry right. as such. I think if you want a career, you've got to say go to America because it's a proper industry. Or go to India, which is a huge industry as well, or maybe France. Sure. You know. But in Britain, it's not that constant an industry, you know. So you're not it's not something that you think, right, I'm gonna really invest in this and make sure I stick at it for twenty five years. Right. And stuff like that, because it's just literally one at a time. And we decided to stay there and to make the films finance there and you know, and to keep a grip on the films. And so um, it meant that you could be quite reckless in the way you approach them. And that was a, and that was shaped early on by we made lots of our own choices, some good, some not so good, as it turned out. But they were our choices about the stuff we did and the way we went about it. And, and, and like, like I said, is the only worry I, I have, I've grown to recognise is when I'm too confident, really, right. about a not reckless when I think I've got a grip on it, I know what I'm doing. Yeah, I'm curious. Like, is success in some ways as as dangerous as, as failure? I mean, you like coming off of something like oh. Train Spotting, where you probably felt like you could do anything. Yeah, and it doesn't matter what kind of how um, sorted out you think you are. You, 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 you. It does affect you. You yeah. know, all the bullshit that you get off people does affect you. It yeah. can't help but do. Telling you you're a genius. Yeah, you were like, anointed. You were the one. Like, of course, <laughs> okay. it affects you. You know, you 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 try and give you the impression. Of course, it doesn't. Um, but of course, it, yeah, it's bound to, and it does affect decisions that you make after them and stuff like that. Um, because that was the the one period where we've talked about this. And I know you've talked at length about this in the past. But like when you almost did Alien, for instance, was after I think Train Spotting, right? And that must have been the time where everything was, or a lot of very intriguing, interesting things were dangled in front of you and. You clearly had a path that you were like already like on, but there was temptation, just like in Apocalypse Now, where the sirens were over there, and you were like, "Oh, <laughs> alien movie! That sounds pretty cool." Um, what I mean, was it just happenstance and luck that you avoided some of those traps? I mean, you you fell into some of them, like we all do. But like that alien, do you feel like that was a trap that you were lucky to avoid in a way? Or no, I'd I'd love to have done Alien actually. Yeah, is the honest truth of it because I love that stuff. I mean, the I saw recently again the Ridley Scott original. Again, it's like. You know, astonished. and then you think, wow, you could have made a film where you where you followed Ridley Scott, James Cameron, David Fincher. Not bad like, company, even yeah. Even if you made a, a lousy job of it, it's pretty <laughs> good lineage to be in there. Right. You know, so, um, no, I'd have loved to have done that. I just, I backed out of that because I was like, I really didn't feel I had the expertise to handle 
where CG was at that time. Yeah. I've got a bit more confident about that now. Maybe not, it's not a good idea, confidence, but as I said, but um, then I then I, I thought, I don't know enough about it. You've got, to, you've got to hold your hand up and say, I'm not really a technical director. I don't relish the technical side of it that much. I love recklessly using it um, and kind of driving in on it, but I'm not an absolute technical director, right. you know, which you needed to be, I think, for that, for that pro- sure. particular project. Do, do they still come to you with franchises, having been on record so much over the past of saying, like, you want to keep your budgets manageable, you want to, you know, I mean, you, yeah, you, no, you you're don't. very sensible. You they they, they no. cross you off the list at some point. You don't get very many scripts. Anymore. No Marvel meeting? No, no, absolutely not. No, you just don't. And, 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 and to give them their credit, when you start off, everybody sends you stuff. I mean, they're really like, it's, it's open house. You know, if somebody's got, appears to know what they're doing and not so to make it work, they send you stuff. And but, but the fact that you don't bite at anything after a while, they're yeah. not stupid. They just go, okay, we'll save the postage. And, you know, <laughs> and, and they don't send them anymore. So this was unusual, this one, when Rudin rang up. And obviously Rudin is a, you know, they call him uh, the mean guy who does great <laughs> stuff. <laughs> That's somebody else's description of him, not mine. Um, and he, he's extraordinary figure yeah and for christian and i my producer christian colson and i to work with him has been a blast yeah because he's really top draw absolute top draw so you from know. a producing standpoint what does that mean to you it what means, do you what do you need from a producer what are you looking for well you get you get and it's a crucial relationship and i've been really lucky i've had a couple of really good ones to have had relationships with what you get is you get script concept first and just this extraordinary ability to influence writing, right. which can be prescriptive, write that like that, or it can be just in- influential, like maybe, you know, it's more blue skies sure. thinking. Um, or it can be personal stuff where you're kind of freezing them out, saying we're not doing the film on the, you know, because it's not good enough, and they come back with something. So there's all sorts of techniques yeah. they can use. He's that. Casting, fabulous taste in actors. You, I mean, I think he was a casting director for a bit or was an agent right? or something. I mean, you've had very close associations with some impeccable writers over the years, some that you've repeated over, over time. Are you someone that, generally speaking, wants, like, was Aaron on set at all? Is that something that gets in your way? Do you feel like, are you open to that in the right circumstance? Or what's your philosophy? Like, once you get to set, should the script be 110% locked? Or do you leave any room for... Know, we tend, because we work with a pretty disciplined budget, we we kind of have a philosophy really that you do a lot of work on the script and lock it. It's not absolutely locked, but you lock it and you yeah. can get lost. I think on set because you are, when you're in the set, when you're in the moment, you can follow a blind alley just as, just as easily as you can follow something extraordinary that opens up in front of you. Sure. I mean, and you can waste a lot of time <laughs> and money and you can think all sorts of things. You get it back in the costume room. So we tend to be very disciplined about the script. Sorkin loves to be around. I love writers to be around. They generally don't want to be very much because it is very boring. Right. You know what it's like. Watching filmmaking is like, oh, my God. <laughs> the, what's his name? Martin Amis went to, who's a great British writer, novelist. He went, an, an, an essayist, occasional essayist. And he went to, this is a long time ago, he went to the set of Robocop 2, <laughs> which was shooting in Toronto or somewhere like that. And he said, watching a film being made is like, it's, you're basically watching a series of delays interrupted by repetitions. <laughs> and I thought that is just, that's exactly right. Because you take people on the set who don't really know what's going on, and they go, why are they doing that again? Right. You just did that. And everybody said it was really great. Why are you doing it again? 
it's baffling, really. To so, be fair, that so, was so RoboCop Mo- 2, though. So yeah, was with, with all due 2. respect to the great <laughs> Irvin Kirshner, I think, who directed that one, actually. It was, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, um, but the point is that you, writers pretty much think, oh, my God, it's just, yeah. I've done the work. It's brilliant, my writing. Why is it taking them so long to achieve it? They just <laughs> say it, don't they? And it's there. Anyway, so they generally back right. away. But I'm quite keen to have them there. I, I like to cast them in the film. Didn't cast Sorkin in this, even though he was cast in... Um, he, took, he played a part in Social Network, didn't he? Yeah. He did play that lawyer, didn't he? Oh, that's anyway, right. yeah, yeah. And we, we, we didn't cast him in this, but he, he likes to be around. And, he, and, and the way it manifested on this is that we would, because we had a lot of rehearsal for each section, mm-hmm. he would be for the, the for the whole rehearsal process. So that if there was anything came up with the actors, he would. He was very flexible. Yeah, he's got a reputation as being very anal about punctuation and all that. Stuff. Not at all. Very flexible. I think if he can, if he hears that you've got the rhythm of it right, which is what he's interested in more than anything, yeah. is rhythm musical thing it's the rhythm of it it's the, 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 and, and it does reveal itself to you it's like Shakespeare Shakespeare you read it it doesn't make any sense right you think, <laughs> but said out loud there it is I stupid <laughs> but you say it out loud yeah. listen to it a few times you think oh yeah I get what they're going on about it's weird does it, anyway. does it limit you in the edit room in a way though in that like you, like that dialogue is so specific and so melodic and has a flow that I don't know, like, are you able uh, as much to cut around or cut down on scenes if if it's part of a flow, if it's part of an ebb and a flow? You can do a bit. It's quite difficult to cut because he builds meaning incrementally, you know. Yeah. It's very clever like that. Um, I think it's partly a technique to stop people just hacking his stuff to bits. <laughs> smart, smart man. <laughs> he just overlaps stuff all the time. <laughs> you know, talking over each other. And, they, and they mention something that they're going to come onto in a page. Right. He does that, that <laughs> technique very deliberate. But you can, and we did some of that. But it, you, we shot, we let the actors have their head in the way that we shot. And then I just made sure I did. Rather than do too many takes of the one setup. I would do many, many different setups of the whole thing. Got it. So you had this freedom in the editing. Then you could, and of course they're great actors. They give you different performances. They're varying things the whole time. They never want to repeat themselves, which is annoying sometimes. Yeah. But actually, it's you benefit from it in the end because they give you variation, and you find yourself in the editing, and you can have a different version of a scene, a completely different version of yeah. the whole scene, um, which is lovely for rhythm for overall. Right rhythm you know. is it useful for you have you found over the years to go we were talking about you know her name is going on the set of robocop 2 going on another filmmaker's set to see how they do it do you ever have you ever picked up anything from another person's technique on set or is it odd to be somewhere and say oh like that must be an odd feeling for both the director and for you yeah to be so self-conscious all that you can't really? do that so you pick your you pick your knowledge up actually from actors who tell you you know they you <laughs> so know what's, you, what's coppola do what does he what, do what does he do what does he do and um so you pick it up from them more than anything because yeah. they're the ones who experience maybe three or four directors a year, you know, whereas you do one film every two years. So And then you never meet the directors <laughs> other than when you're up for prizes together. <laughs> then you suddenly bump into each other. You know? By the way, what do you do? <laughs> um, what's the lesson learned? You're going over kind of skipping around filmography for, for The Beach, which is something that, you know, had, had some travails. There were some issues with that one. What's the biggest takeaway in retrospect from that for you? Oh, t- we took too much money. Yeah. And we took, and consequently, as a result of doing that, you take too many crew. We took all this crew to Thailand. We took like 100 kind of British crew to mm. Thailand. And I remember thinking, I did a little, I mean, most of this is retrospective, but I did, I did feel uneasy about elements of it because it was a bit, it belongs to a different era. And I, I, this will sound a bit, might sound a bit dry, but 
that's how David Lean made films. And that is a different era of filmmaking. Right. It's very close to the colonial era of filmmaking where the expertise lay in the West. Right. And we went to locations to make very, sometimes very important films, you know, but they were, they were our version of that. Right. And I learned from that because we tried to shift the film to be more about how the Thai culture was responding to these Westerners arriving because it's a gift as a metaphor in a way. They set up this paradise island and they had no interest in Thai culture really. But we couldn't shift the film. You couldn't, sh- it's, it was just too unmanageable yeah. really, to change the film enough. Um, That's clearly a lesson you apply to something like Slumdog where you go into that environment and... So we took eight people. Right. And it's easier to do in, in India, of course, because they have a huge movie industry. But it's also meant that you were literally making the films through their eyes as well yeah. at times, especially if you trust them. And we did get some key crew who were wonderful to us and, you know, not explain the country because you can't explain the country. It's unfathomable. But let you appreciate the unfathomability of it all. Yeah. <laughs> part, part of the legend also, obviously, as you well know, around the beach was the choice to use Leonardo. And then Ewan was supposedly in the mix at the time. And you're going to be working with Ewan again next year, which is thrilling news. It is, yeah. Did, We're did, very did, excited. Did it yeah. take a while to kind of get past that? Like, was yeah. there a yeah, I think one we, conversation in particular or a series of? It was of, a series, really. And we didn't, I've acknowledged in the past, we didn't behave very well to him. He deserved a lot better from us. Yeah. A lot, lot better. And I regret that very much. But it's, it wasn't Leo's fault, who is a very decent man as well. Right. I mean, you'll hear all sorts of stories about Leo. All I can tell you, having worked with him, he's a, he's a, he, he, it's like, funnily enough, weirdly, I don't know whether they got this from each other. He's like Winslet. They're an absolute, she's like this. When you, they're an absolute partner on the set. They're a filmmaking partner right. who understand filmmaking and telling stories and they want to do it for you, it's like for the director. Right. I mean, it's like, and they're both like that. It's very kind of, uh, maybe it's very European, I don't know, but um, she's very like him like that. And it, so he was, he was wonderful. And I wish I'd made a better film for him, you know, with him. Um, so, maybe I will one day, you know. And so. the prospect of working with not just Ewan, but the rest of the guys on, on T2, as we'll call it for now, until James Cameron files a lawsuit or something. <laughs> Incoming. <laughs> He's been put on notice. Uh, um, what, made, what made now the time and what makes it so intriguing? Because, I mean, you know, you've obviously never done a sequel to uh, one of your works. Like, the, the comparisons will, of course, be made. Um, you're going to be living in your own shadow in a way. <laughs> um, is that daunting or exciting or... Yeah, it's very, um, again, it's kind of the ideal, you could take two options to it. You could think you know what, you know what you're doing because you've already done it, which I think would be disastrous. And I think it's much more about what, what will we do with this? Right. Because um, it's just truly is the unknown. What we do know is that obviously they're 20 years older and that felt really fascinating because it was a story of such hedonism, gritty, but hedonism, and, and, and something we all remember or recognize that when you're in your early mid-twenties, you can get away with stuff. Yeah. You get older, you can't. You can push it and you get away with it if you're lucky. Maybe one of your friends doesn't, but most of you get away with it. Um, in their case, one of their friends didn't. Um, so there's that. There's also this weird thing about the film that people remember the characters and they remember their names, which never happens on movies, apart from Jack and Rolls maybe, but 
you literally can't remember the names of the people. You, you say it was Al Pacino, or it was you sure. know, you, you, you ID the actor playing the part. People come up in the street, and this is 20 years later, and they're talking about Begbie and Renson and Sigbo, like they know them. So for, for us, I don't know what its impact will be around the world, but for us at home, that's a kind of national conversation that we can kind of, that's a very kind of political way of describing <laughs> politicians' kind of expression. But it's kind of a way, it, it will occupy that. People will turn up to hear what they're going to say now. And Hodge, John Hodge, it's done an amazing. It's a really good script, and it wouldn't. We wouldn't have got it back together if it wasn't because the actors are all wary of. They didn't want to spoil it by sure. doing something very secondary to the original. But it feels like a really interesting prospect. Have you all been in a room together yet? Yeah, we had a little read through a couple of months ago, in London, when most of us were there for. I, the only one we missed was Johnny. Johnny couldn't get there. Mm. Um, but yeah, I've met them all. I met them all. Um, amazing. And, and real and amazing. <laughs> sent, sent them the script, met them all, and they're like, wow. Because <laughs> the thing I feared, because it, there's four of them, I always worried that there wouldn't be enough for one of them to do. Right. And there'd be the pressure on them to make up the numbers. You know, but actually they've all got four great stories in it. Really interesting stories in it. So. Is, there, is there one script in particular that you've labored on over the years that you haven't been able to crack for, for whatever reason? Oh, yeah, there's a couple. Yeah. There's a couple we've been working on. Um, Wait, did I, did I, I thought I heard something about a David Bowie project. Is yes, that right? It's a wonderful script. What is that? By Frank, Frank Cottrell Boyce. Um, um, That's intriguing. And it's a kind of, it's a sort of musical, kind of-ish, but we couldn't get the music right. So I didn't want it, I didn't want it to go down the route of Velvet Goldmine, right. which, you know, couldn't use the music and use different music and fictionalised it and stuff like that. So, we had to put it away for the moment. You're just um, trying to wear down David one, one of these days, <laughs> get him at a, a, a different moment in time. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful piece written by Frank, who, um, and I hope we'll be able to return to it. So that's one, for instance, yeah. I mean, one, one would think, um, I feel like you're, you're asked often about musicals. It seems like a no-brainer that at some point that has to happen, whatever your unique take on a musical would be. I'd, I'd love to do this film. It's, it's such a... It's 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 not really a musical, but it is yeah. as well. Um, <laughs> and and it would be a, a yeah. Anyway, so we'll see. Talking about a couple genre films, yeah. one, one of it which we've referred to already and became a phenomenon and still is revered to this day, twenty eight days later. And the other is too. It, it wasn't a phenomenon at the time, but has become like. I just I, I was talking to to name drop for a second. I talked to Tom Hiddleston the other day, and I was asking, you know, like what's that movie that is your barometer for like whether you're friends with a person or not? And he named Sunshine, and I would agree, Sunshine's one of those for me. Um, how do you rationalize when one is a peak and one is a valley in terms of reception, like not critically but just commercially? Yeah. Are you at this point in your career able to kind of reconcile that a little better, or is it sort of still sting? when something that must have been beloved like Sunshine doesn't resonate with a, with a commercial audience. No, it didn't, did it? And, it? and it's weird the way that it's kind of built a kind of reputation subsequently, really. I suppose that's because it is in the sci-fi genre. You tend to, the, 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 the people, out, the guardians out there of geek culture right. would embrace especially that which had been ignored. You know, they tended, they have a, they have a tendency to want to cherish that which has not been appreciated. Totally. Yeah, and I and and you, one loves them for that, you know. And um, you, so I'm always really, I'm always really, oh yeah, it's really lovely that that happens. At the time, what happens at the time? 
Yeah, it's tough. But you kind of, you know, you're in a very privileged position and you realise that um, that some things you have control of and there's a film director, you need it, yeah. and other things you don't and you all, and you better learn you haven't got control of it because you don't and you, you have to accept that sometimes you don't have control of it. I feel, like, I, I feel like Coppola has said this when people have asked like him what his favourite of his films are. He, he tends to name the ones that have been ignored. Yeah. Do you tend to have the same kind of thing? Yeah, about? yeah you do because you, the other ones, everybody's sort of not... I mean, people know more about train spotting than I do. I'm having to catch up now to do the sequel. It's like, they, yeah, so you do. You tend to go for the ones that um, people have ignored, you know, um, or didn't get a release or didn't do the rounds or sure. all that kind of stuff, you know. What's your comfort food as a film goer, as a film lover, in terms of genre or film, like one, to put you in a, in a good headspace? Like what's, what are the films that you keep coming back to year after year? Movies or types of movies? Either way, you want to take it. Whether it's a genre or whether it's, well, for first, like what, what, what are the two or three movies you think you've seen more than any other? Which ones hold up to repeated viewing and do you still get something out of whether yeah. it's enjoyment or... Or knowledge. Well, it would be the ones we talked about. Really, it would, be, it, it would be the Coppola, a lot of the Coppola stuff, and 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 stuff like Alien, and yeah. um, you know, I mean, Titanic. <laughs> There's, I, please, you know, James Cameron like, is a genius. I mean, I cry every time, and I've watched it. <laughs> God knows how many times. I'm not just saying that because we're trying to get the rights to the <laughs> to the to the title T2, but good work, James. Fine work. <laughs> On you go. Um, uh, He's a very a very nice man, actually. I met him. Yeah. Very, very nice guy. Has a formidable reputation, but I found him a very... I think he's mellowed a little bit in recent years, from, very, from my all accounts. Yeah, he's a very, I thought, a very, um, very good, very, seemed like a good man. Um, so, yeah, it would be those kind of things, I guess, really. There's, there's other stuff that you kind of... Um, there are other sort of turning points that you kind of... You think about the Nick Rogue stuff for me. Mm. Is there's, there's one I'd... Oh, no, let me talk about Eureka. Okay, I've never seen. Yeah, okay. nobody knows it. Yeah. Gene Hackman's one of Gene Hackman's greatest performances. I'm sold already. <laughs> Eureka! It's the story of a man who has everything. He discovers literally liquid gold in Alaska, or in the wilderness, anyway. And he—he's one of these guys who just has then everything. He has the world at his fingertips it's weirdly actually it would be dated now because of course that's a tech world now right you know the jobs the zuckerbergs those kind of the tech giants the googles elon musk all those kind of guys but this guy is the is from the oil gold kind of resources mineral resources yeah. that you wrench from the earth yourself and it's the story of him and his family and holy shit <laughs> the first half of the movie hackman I you've never, and he's one of the, the great. He's actors, probably my favorite actor, and he's right? never yet been, I've never seen that. Amazing, never ever been better, and it's an amazing film. And it was buried by the studio at the oh. time. I don't know why. I remember going to see it on the day of release because I was a big Nick Rogue fan, and I saw it on the day of release in Hampstead in London. And I went back. That was like the Friday. I went back on the Wednesday to see it again, and it had gone. And you couldn't find out why because there was no internet then. But it was like, but it had gone. I mean, you, Did it even happen? Was it just in my my brain? I know. And there's a couple of sequences. <laughs> anyway, so that's a big one. If nothing else. I've come away with a, a great pick for my <laughs> arguably my favorite actor of all time too. Amazing. Um, is this an enjoyable time for you right now to be on, on the circuit? You've you've done this over the years many many times. Um, at least you get to spread the wealth with some great cast and, and Aaron's out there. But uh, I mean, it's, it's a fun film to talk about. I would think for you. Yeah, it, it's a tr it's a difficult one to talk about. It? On, on, 
I found it very difficult to talk about until people had seen it. Because, of course, it's impossible for people not to realise it is in the biopic. Right. You just default to that. You And then that immediately makes you think of a sequence of events, you know, like that. And um, especially with a figure that's passed away, yeah. because you expect it. Oh, yeah, it's going to be from the beginning to the end and stuff like that. Um, so, But once people have seen it and kind of got the structure and the idea of the structure and how innovative that idea is, uh, then they can kind of, you, you can have good conversations with them, yeah. yeah. Well, I found it honestly thrilling and touching and, and, and beautiful, like pretty much all of your work over the years. So uh, congratulations on it, uh, Danny. And thank you honestly so much for stopping by today. This has been a real pleasure. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. No, it was good. That was nice. Yes, yeah, very good. Attention humans, before you turn your podcast application off, why not listen to the best podcast in the universe, Improv for Humans, with Matt Besser. Oh, welcome to Improv for Humans with Matt Besser, that's me! Improv legend Matt Besser and his friends. Take your suggestions. Three of the best improvisers in the world will be improvising off your suggestions given to me at Twitter, newspaper articles... We're going to crap on YouTube. And turn them into long-form improv comedy. But I wasn't referring to the lion when I said lion. I was referring to your tooth. What? That's what I call teeth now. Oh, I see. Lions. Now we're going to knock that crown right out in one fast shot. What do you know? Swift swift shot. Can I be honest with you? What? As your sole defender? (sighs) I'm beginning to feel that your lion hunting activities are crossing into your dental activities in a way that I had not anticipated. Listen to Improv for Humans on iTunes, Evolve.com, Howl, or your favorite podcast app. This has been a Wolf Pop production. Executive produced by Paul Shear, Adam Sachs, Chris Bannon, and Matt Gorley. For more information and content, visit wolfpop.com.